The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. I know there's a certain rhythm and a certain fluidity and a certain continuity to having five teams in a division and five days in a week of podcasts. And so we were able to just sort of overlap them And I'm going to screw the whole thing up. Today, I'm going to screw the whole thing up. This is Fantasy NBA Today. I am Dan Bashpris. It's Monday. What's happening? Welcome to a new week. April 20th, we rumble along through the era of the quarantine. We are two days away from the five-week mark since the NBA shut down. We are slowly losing our minds, and at the same time, we're kind of quietly figuring out how to deal with all of this stuff. We are four and a half weeks since California was shut down. And as expected, things are actually quieting a bit in California, basically any place that's been shut down for four weeks or so. So that is small reason for optimism. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because most of these places that, uh, that, well, folks are listening to the podcast all across the globe have different timelines on all this, so there's sort of no point in focusing on any one unless we're making a much larger point. And I just see, I see no reason to do a deep dive on that other than to say that if you're trying to time this thing out, the the numbers that we went over two weeks ago to say, look, it's going to be around four weeks from when your state or area shut itself down that you're going to start to see really positive moves, impact moves from the measures taken does seem like it's holding. As far as uh, how I'm going to blow up the continuity of the show, by the way, I'm Dan Baspris, at Dan Baspris on Twitter, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. The last two weeks, we have covered the Pacific Division, then the Northwest Division, one team a day, five days a week. Very easy. Today, under normal circumstance, we would have just plowed headfirst, headlong into the Southwest Division, which is the western part of the South. (laughs) The western part of the Deep South, which is, of course, the eastern general edge. And so then you go west, and that's the Southwest. It's the only way that that makes sense. Largely teams in Texas with a smattering of teams, two to be exact, outside uh, of the state. But we're going to start that tomorrow. Because I've promised a couple of things. One of the things I promised is that we'd talk a little bit about lessons learned, overarching lessons from this season gone by, or whatever has happened of this season. And then the other thing is that the basketball world had kind of a come-together moment yesterday, Sunday evening, possibly a few hours apart, depending on what your time zone was. But of course, the much-anticipated release of the Chicago Bulls documentary series, The Last Dance, aired in the States on ESPN and via Netflix in, I believe, areas outside of North America, if I'm not mistaken. I might be getting that part wrong, but I know Netflix has the rights outside of, uh, I guess, areas where ESPN covers. First of all, it was awesome. I had a chance to watch it today, Monday, 
earlier today because uh, well, <laughs> weekends are weekends are tough when you got a toddler and a newborn on quarantine. So don't don't judge my timing on it. I wanted to watch it live, but I DVR'd it. Whatever, you know. And uh, first of all, it was amazing. But also, it was really cool to have something that all of us in the basketball community were waiting for together. I felt like it was watching a game, honestly. I anticipate basketball games every day during the season for the fantasy season. I love it. I love the wait. I mean, it's excruciating, but I love it when it's over at 4 o'clock Pacific time. Basically, every single day, the games begin, and we can all watch them together. It's new because you haven't seen it before. And for this, yes, the content is stuff that happened 23 years ago, 22 years ago. But the way it was presented to us was completely new. And you've heard me talk about this on the podcast before. I am unable to. For whatever reason, at my very core, I am unable to watch just straight through old basketball games. A lot of networks are airing them right now, and I can't watch them. I feel like I'm cheating my brain, and it drives me bonkers. I can't do it. But this this felt different. This was different in that it was... It was Old, but it was new. It was something I hadn't seen before. It was something that I was waiting for. And I. it was very cool to me that all of us, everyone listening to this podcast and then so many millions more, I think the, I think the ESPN released the numbers and it was like 6 million people watched the, the documentary or the first two episodes of it. We were all waiting for it together. We all watched it together. In this time where we're all stuck at home, we have this one thing that we're able to grab onto as the new, as this, as it's sports content. And it's not just pulling garbage out of the sky. This was compelling, really cool sports content. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that on today's podcast. And I think we might do that on Mondays going forward. It's going to screw up our timing. I'm not going to be able to say, hey, this week is the division. This week is the bloop division. It's not going to work that way anymore. But you know what? We're going to get over it because we had something really cool happen yesterday, and it's going to happen every Sunday for the next four additional ones. They're airing two uh, each Sunday for five weeks. And we'll break them down, things that we learned, but more than things that we learned because a lot of the stuff in that was plot line that we already knew, but details that we didn't. And I thought it might be cool to talk about just sort of what that documentary meant to the basketball community right now in this current climate. But this is a fantasy podcast. At its core, this is Fantasy NBA Today. I know the words NBA Today appear at the end of it. It's two of the 67% of the name of the show. Two-thirds of the words in the show title. And so that means we can talk about NBA stuff, and certainly now in the quarantine, we can pretty much talk about anything we want. Because who the hell's counting? We don't know when this is ending. But it's a fantasy show. So I wanted to talk about one main lesson that I think I generally do an okay job of applying, but I don't think it's good enough. I think I can be better at this one particular lesson. And thus, I think that I can be better 
at steering this podcast and steering you guys, because I know without sounding arrogant in any way, I know you're listening to this podcast most of the time for fantasy advice. You want me to help you analyze the basketball data in a way that helps us all win our fantasy teams. And so one thing I think that this is, uh, I want to take sort of a step back to describe how I got to this point before I even reveal the lesson learned. One thing that we're all inclined to do just as human beings, this is a psychology deal, is that we like to take glimmering single examples of something happening and assume that that is then the case. It's not scientifically astute to do so. Meaning if something kind of boring happens 99 times and then one time something really interesting happens, it's in our nature, mentally, psychologically, to say, oh, that's a thing that will happen, as opposed to saying, oh, that's a thing that can happen rarely. And the thing I'm talking about on today's podcast, the lesson that I wanted to impart, that I wanted us to to remember, is that every once in a while, a player will change situations. doesn't have to be a different team because they could sort of rebuild a team around said player. But every once in a while, a player will change situations and see a marked spike in efficiency despite a large drop-off in usage. Every once in a while, a player will see a large spike in efficiency to offset a large drop-off in usage. Recent examples of this. Kevin Durant, moving from Oklahoma City to Golden State. He took about two and a half-ish, I think, shots fewer, less per game, but shot about two to three percent better. So even though he was taking, he had less attempts, he had fewer attempts, let me get my grammar right on this show, even though his usage was lower, the spike in efficiency, and then of course he did a whole bunch of other stuff because he wasn't relied upon on offense. He was able to rebound more, block more shots, things like that that, that played a more feature role in his fantasy game. It was able to offset the lower usage. But the vast majority of the time, when a player loses usage, he loses value. There are times where we think a player is going to lose usage, but he doesn't. And as an example, looking at this year, and I'm guessing a lot of uh, you fine folks listening to the podcast are thinking of this same player, Russell Westbrook is an interesting example of someone that we all figured would probably lose some of his usage moving from Oklahoma City to Houston, but actually ended up taking two and a half more shots per game season over season. And his second highest shot attempt total of any season in his career, second literally the 16-17 Oklahoma City Thunder season, where he was taking 27 shots per game. Woo, that was a wild one. That was the first of his three consecutive average of triple-double years, as you guys may recall. That 16-17 season was also the one uh, right after Kevin Durant left for Golden State. So that was the so lonely. I believe that was the Victor Oladipo year, if I'm remembering the uh, the chronology correctly. And so that was Westbrook against the world. 
You know, his field goal percent was pretty low that year, but took 24 shots a game and averaged 31 and a half points. This year, there was an assessment, and, you know, going back, I'd probably make the same guess, that Westbrook would take less shots playing alongside James Harden than he did alongside Paul George, and it just didn't bear itself out that way. To Westbrook's credit, he actually moved away from the three-point shot and went to the rim way more often this year. So boosted his efficiency in a way that you say, okay, well, you know, playing with a superstar like Harden, that should help someone's efficiency, right? So we might have thought, hey, Russell Westbrook's going to move this place. He might see an efficiency bump if he sees a usage drop-off. As it turns out, he actually saw a bump in both because the system was just very different. Went to a team that was taking more shots. He was getting, he was receiving passes. Assists came down by three and a half per ball game because he was on the receiving end a little bit more. Anyway, vast majority of the time, when someone loses usage, and again, we can wipe Westbrook out because even though he'd be a nice example of someone who went to a new place with a better teammate and saw an increase in efficiency. He didn't lose any usage. The main point I want to make with all of this, the thing that I don't want to get lost in the shuffle, because I think there's the way that this is phrased can actually uh, dictate the way we're interpreting in quite a bit. Uh, Here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that players don't get a spike in efficiency when they go to a good situation. Oftentimes, a player going from being a good player on a very bad team, taking all kinds of shots, many of them ill-advised because they're, well, the only guy left standing. A lot of times that player going to a team with some other player of gravity, whoever it is drawing the defense, will actually get a small efficiency bump. But not to be lost in the shuffle here, it's the reason it's... It's what it actually means to that player's value. Kevin Durant, turning back to that example, when he went from Oklahoma City to Golden State, he went from 19.2 shots per game to 16.5. Now, his shooting percentage went up from around 51 with the Thunder to 54 the next year with the Warriors. That's good. How come he ended up inside the top three in fantasy stats? Well, that was part of it. But so is the fact that he blocked 1.6 shots per game. He averaged 2.7 combined steals and blocks, and his turnovers in Oklahoma City, which were 3.5 the previous year, dropped to 2.2. There were other factors at play. It wasn't just the boost in field goal percent. And by the way, uh, Kevin Durant was number one that year, although he did miss some time. He missed some games. He played 62 games that season. He was number one on a per-game basis, uh, but lost out by totals to a couple of the other players that were logging additional games. Anthony Davis was actually number one. Cat uh, was number two. Steph, Giannis, Harden, Westbrook, Kawhi, and then KD was eight because of how many games he missed that season. But the point is, the reason his value was number one was a handful of reasons. Field goal percent was one of them. But if you try to tell me that getting an extra three shots per game and losing at eh, 2% in field goal, the volume trade-off there is superior. 
You can go to his previous year. That season, he was at 25 points and 4.8 assists on 53.7% shooting from the field, 6.2 free throws per game at about 88%. The previous year, he was at 28 points per game on about 51% shooting, 7 free throws attempts per game on 90% from the field, and and 3.5 turnovers per game. Went from 3.5 to 2.2. I don't know if I said 5. If I said 5, I misspoke. He went from 3.5 to 2.2. That's a big change also. His points per game at 28 that previous year was a massive impact number. The free throw volume and what he was able to do was a massive impact number. But he was a big negative in turnovers at 3.5 per game. Not really a negative anything else because he's great, but just not quite as large of a positive. The difference, and Basketball Monster does a wonderful job of, of outlining this for us. In the season with the Warriors, his field goal percent was about two standard deviations above the mean. He had an, a positive impact of about two, if we're going to go on that number. His points, his scoring had a positive impact of 1.87. And I'm just going, by the way, with the the... the bare bones scoring metrics here 1.87 there uh and free throw percent was 1.51 was the positive impact with the warriors if you go back to the previous year his scoring impact was 2.84 a full one entire standard deviation better he actually made more three pointers but we're just going to toss that out now because you know it, it actually helps my argument but makes things a bit more convoluted field goal percent uh Net increase was down by 1.6, so that was down by 0.4. Free throw percent was back up to 2.24. So the main scoring categories, including field goal percent, he was actually a greater positive impact guy with the Thunder. Even though he went to the Warriors, even though he saw field goal percent spike of 3%, that's not insignificant. The fact that he was doing... 51-ish percent on 19-plus shots per game the previous year led to, again, even though, sorry, he was at, yeah, he moved to the Warriors and it was 16.5%. Even though he was at 19.2, so, or he was at 16.5 at 54%, that was good. But that jump in field goal percent and the impact it had at 16.5 shots per game was actually less impact than the drop-off in scoring, free throw volume, and if you want to add three-pointers into the mix, that makes the argument even stronger. So, while on paper, Kevin Durant, who, again, finished number one on a per-game basis in that 16-17 season, By the way, he was number two the previous year, so it wasn't like there was this giant leap forward. But by all accounts, he was slightly more valuable the following year. Slightly. The big reason for that was an extra some 30-ish blocks over the course of the year and about 60 to 70 fewer turnovers over the course of the year. That actually was the big impact part. 
that created a positive movement in his overall value because he went from, well, his positive block value with the Warriors was enormous at roughly 1.8 above the the main marker, and the previous year it was right around 0.9, so more than double, basically double how, how important he was getting an extra half a block per game. So if you roll it all together that next year, yeah, he ended up as a slightly better fantasy player. But if you're just looking, and we're, again, you know, you can think about these other factors if you want, but for Durant, the lower turnovers, what was that? Was that playing with, in a different organization, different team? Was that just wanting it more, the higher blocks? What did that really mean? You have to weigh all of these factors, and if you... Look at them for the, the bulk of the NBA. Most guys moving to a new situation, franchise, whatever, if they're joining up with a high-usage player and their own usage is taking a dip, most guys, that will lead to a overall value dip as well. Let's try to apply this a little bit going forward. There are a couple of easy solutions to this problem. Solution number one, or possible uh, reasoning number one. Look at guys coming back from missing an entire year of injury and the situation around them. Bradley Beal in Washington, I think, might be the best example of this. We can, we can go to the mat and say that Bradley Beal getting John Wall back creates a certain gravity on the basketball court for him that his team simply hasn't had the last year and a half. He's been running solo He's been running solo. He's had the, the, the run of the damn franchise for a year and a half. And that's been all well and good. And you could say, oh, well, you know, he's going to get a running mate back. And maybe you'll see the efficiency come up for Beal a little bit. Which, saying something, because he's actually been relatively efficient. Shot like 48% last year. is around 46% this season. Let's say that Beal... Next year, this last season, this one that we that just concluded, if we want to say that for good, he took 23 shots a game. That's the most in the NBA. Higher than Westbrook, higher than Harden. Those are two and three, by the way, in uh, shots attempted on the season. Shot 45.5%, averaged 30.5 points per game. Wow, really something. That's a lot. Four boards, six assists, 1.3 steals, three three-pointers, eight free throws a game at 84% per game. You could make a pretty reasonable argument that Bradley Beal will only have to take 19 shots a game next season. You could even say 20. I don't care. And the looks will be better. He won't have to take nearly as many desperation heaves at the end of shot clocks. He won't have to do nearly as much solo stuff as he had this season. And maybe that leads to his field goal percent going from 45 and a half up back to, honestly, I don't care what number you put there. Say it goes all the way up to 50%. What I mean, that's a crazy jump there, but let's say it goes all the way up to 50%. It won't. But what if it did? Is that enough to make up for the huge usage drop-off that's coming? Which, by the way, will probably impact him in more than just scoring as we just saw with Kevin Durant moving to a new spot. In this one, it's not moving to a new spot, but it is getting a a big usage player back alongside of him. 
the shot attempts are almost definitely going to come down by three, maybe more per game. How do you sort this thing out? What if he still made half of them? 10 out of 20. Well, not quite as much as this year. This season, he was at 10.4 out of 22.9. But the free throws are going to come down as well. That'll come down from 8 to, I don't care what, knock off 10%, 7.2, a little bit less, 7. What does that do to his scoring? What about assists? Is that going to come back down to 4.5? 4.5 to 5 range instead of 6? Steals and blocks, do they come back up or do they just stay the same? Three-pointers, does that come down from three to two and a half? So there's all these things that go into a slight, even a slight, but this will probably be more than slight, usage drop-off where an efficiency bump almost never covers the gap entirely. And even in the best example that we could find of a player whose fantasy value went up when his usage came down, and that was Kevin Durant, who we just talked about for 10 minutes, the reasons that that happened wasn't the reason that you want to pin it on. It wasn't just that his field goal percent got better. It was that his turnovers came way down. He decided to block a crap load of shots on defense. And his field goal percent covered up the fact, sort of, partly, that he wasn't taking nearly as many shots per game. That his volume came way down. And the slight drop-off... It would have been a big drop-off if his field goal percent didn't come up. It would have been a very large drop, but luckily it did, and so that covered up some of it. But the reason that he ended up a net positive moving to a team where he was going to have to take less of an offensive role, well, even if, even if it's just by a couple of shots per game, the reason the value went up with him was because of other stuff. I know we, know what's, we don't know what's going to happen this offseason. This is not a particularly crowded free agent class whenever the free agency thing happens this next offseason. So you're not going to have a truckload of these situations kicking in. But it, it's, I mean, just looking at some of the names, even from this season, that just change situation and what that means, start from the top and work your way down. What about Kawhi Leonard? Well, he went to a team where his second guy in command was largely hurt. So sure, his volume was generally a positive. Kawhi Leonard took 20 shots a game this year, which is pretty darn high for him, and it was actually the highest of his career. He went up by a shot season over season. Now, what does that mean? Look at what happened with him. Okay, so here's the thing. If you had assumed Paul George was playing and healthy the entire season, you probably wouldn't have ventured to guess that his, that his volume was going to go up. So forget that for a minute. But it's just another example of a guy in Kawhi Leonard whose efficiency went down by 2.5%, but he took an extra shot per game. He ran the offense more, and so the scoring went up, the assists went up, and it covered the fact that his field goal percent went down. Need another example? Before he got hurt, Kyrie Irving went to a place where his volume we knew was going to go way up because KD was set to miss the entire season. The hits just keep on coming. Now, certainly, again, not a great example if you're looking at an entire season's body of work because, well, he played 20 games this year, but he took the most shots of any season of his career. And even though his shooting percentage was down 
1% from last year, 1.5% from the season before that in Boston, the fact that he took so many more shots, two, namely, or more, led to almost four points more per game for Kyrie. By the way, odd footnote is assists per game actually came down from last season in Boston. They were up from every other season in his career. Volume almost always trumps small moves in efficiency. Almost always. Do we need other examples? Jimmy Butler went to a place where he could be the alpha again, although he's sort of a weird test case because we know he loves to just will his team to victory with fight and grit and doesn't feel the need to take a truckload of shots on a, on a you know game-to-game basis. He did his damage at the free-throw line, so that also makes him kind of a difficult player to handicap. But if you're looking at Philadelphia, where the number of shots he took per game was almost exactly the same, but a number of free-throws was basically a half, so he was getting an extra you know, two, four trips to the line per basketball game, and so effectively his usage was much higher this year. So even though his usage didn't manifest in shot attempts, His usage did manifest in a slight dip in field goal percent. He shot 46% in Philadelphia last year, 47% with Minnesota, 45.5% in Miami. But the volume overall, the usage was higher. He was the point guard. He had two extra assists per game. He took way more free throws per game this year, so his scoring was up. His assists were up. Yeah, the turnovers were up also, but that sort of comes with the territory. His rebounds were up. So just doing more, and that even, you can't even trace that one to usage. But another example of a guy where you're like, well, you know, and, and not that anyone was worried that Jimmy Butler was going to suffer from alpha maleitis, where he goes to a place, has to do more, and can't do it. But it's just another example of a guy going to a spot where you're saying, well, what's the hit to his efficiency, and how does that bump up against what's going to happen with his usage rate? Almost every time, usage equals value. Andre Drummond got traded midseason to a place where he wasn't going to have as much usage. Value plummeted. I mean, you, you can go to almost any example. Drew Holiday, who everybody thought was going to be so glorious, and on this podcast, that's when we actually got right. So while I... Sometimes admit I get caught up in the efficiency spike. That was one where I said, okay, so Anthony Davis, who didn't even play effectively the last two months last year, he's gone, and like nine dudes just came to town, and you're going to tell me that Holiday's going to get to do more per game? Now, Westbrook, I I, I really didn't see this coming, that he was going to take two extra shots per game, but that worked because, yes, he got the slight efficiency bump from playing with a... A very strong teammate in James Harden, but he also saw a usage bump or basically about the same season over season. So he's a weird anomaly and you can kind of throw him out because he was neither. He was all the things. Kemba Walker went to a place where his usage was going to be lower. He's a great example. By the way, he's one that I'm willing to say I got wrong. He's the guy. If you ever want to pick an example from this year, forget some of the guys at the top of the list. Take Kemba Walker who for his entire career, you could just carve in stone what he was going to do season to season because he was the alpha dog on those Charlotte teams. No one was contesting him for touches. He goes to Boston. We all knew his usage was going to take a hit. 
with Jason Tatum and Gordon Hayward and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart. We all knew the usage was going to take a hit. And I convinced myself, I convinced myself that he would see an efficiency bump that would cover up the usage hit. But you know what happened? Neither. Not only did his shots per game drop to his lowest in five years, but he saw no efficiency bump either, possibly because of his knee. And so you kind of got the worst of all worlds with Kemba this year. Scoring down, assists down, field goal percent down, or I mean, call it a wash. Field goal attempts down. The only thing that was up was three-point makes. That's, by the way, why his field goal percent was lower, because he was taking more than half of his shots from three-point land. Steals down also. Minutes per game down. Injury-related, maybe. Also, you know, being on a team that can win games. We didn't have to play every single second. And so you can work your way down the entire list and, and name every single one of these guys where you can talk yourself into it. But here's the thing. Usage equates to value. It's just how it works. When these guys have the ball in their hand, when they get more shots, they get more points, assists. If they're a good foul shooter, that's a good thing. The opposite, I suppose, would be true. But generally, even that counterbalances. So as we're looking towards next year and thinking about guys moving teams and changing hands and situations adjusting, let's all keep in mind that almost never, once in a damn blue moon, does the efficiency jump of a player losing usage mean more than the drop in what they get to do on the basketball court. I want the guy taking 20 shots at 47% over the guy taking 17 shots at 49 or 50%. And I love percentages. That's the thing. You know that about me. Those are some of my favorites. But it's just about value. And the extra three or four points per game and half assist and .33 pointers and field goal percent impact, that's just worth more than a couple of percentage points on field goal percent. And if it's a good foul shooter, you probably get a little bit of a bump there too. Quickly now, as we enter the uh, second segment of today's show, I wanted to just talk a little bit about The Last Dance, which, as I mentioned at the beginning of this prod, I watched earlier today, and it was super cool. And I don't have any intense thoughts on the actual content of the show. I just thought it was really neat that there's something we can all talk about together every Monday for the next, now, this and then four additional weeks. A couple of things that jumped out to me in seasons one or episodes one and two. Number one, we saw Michael Jordan put on a minutes restriction. I definitely did not know that happened. Or if I did, I didn't remember it. I do not remember that. And I should remember that because the 97-98 season, I was already 14 years old. I wasn't like I was a little tiny kid anymore. That was right around the time that I was getting into basketball and following the, you know, the Nick Van Exel Lakers. <laughs> the Sedale, the, uh, excuse me, the uh, Cedric Sabalos Lakers was in that era. I might get my years flip-flopped a little bit because, you know, undergrad wiped out my short-term memory. 
But that was right around the time that I was getting into basketball. So I, I didn't know most of the details behind this, the final season of all these Chicago Bulls. So that, that blew me away. Related to that same Jordan foot injury, the broken foot, uh, early in his career. By the way, this is uh, long before. Oh, so you know what? Let me get my, my numbers right. That was actually in the 80s. Excuse me. The, the documentary is about the 97-98 season, but the broken foot and the, the rehab and the, the load management, that was in the 80s. So I forgive myself for not knowing anything about that because I was a toddler. So I thought that was kind of interesting. The other thing was, we spend so much time right now complaining about how NBA teams aren't telling us anything related to their injury situation. The Raptors this year, for one. Every single player was out indefinitely until, boop, they're back on the court. And looking at that situation, Michael Jordan was practicing at his college, and the Bulls didn't even know what he was doing. They weren't even monitoring his rehab. Perspective, I guess. I'm still going to complain. Make no mistake. I'm still going to bitch about the fact that no one's telling us how long these guys are going to be out because we're in a new era now. You can't just say, well, they didn't tell you about it 35 years ago. Yeah, okay, fine. Well, it's not 35 years ago anymore. We now know. You guys know. The Bulls literally did not know that Jordan was ramping up his rehab work in Chapel Hill, playing two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four, etc., and so, sure, they couldn't tell the media what his situation was. Nowadays, it's 2020, man. These players know, or the, the teams know every damn move their players make. If Anthony Davis gets hurt with the Lakers, you think they're just going to not know what he's doing for three months? He's going to show up in street clothes and then in between games, they're like, whatever, dude. Hell no. Every second of that guy's day is going to be accounted for. Testing, rehab, strength training, whatever. All that kind of stuff. So then when they say, well, you know, out indefinitely, and it's not the Lakers. They actually did a pretty good job this year, but just picking a, a high-profile player. So and then they feed us this nonsense the NBA teams do. Oh, we don't know. They're, they're out indefinitely. Bull bleeping you know what. You know exactly what's going on. Here's the new rule I propose. If you want to tell us that a player's out indefinitely... You can't know what they're doing either. I thought that was kind of interesting. And then episode two was largely around the uh, beginnings of the, the Scotty Pippen drama. Now, Pippen was just wrapping up his NBA career right when I got into fantasy sports. I have... I have fond memories of my first season of fantasy basketball, which I played my undergrad year in college, 2001. And I remember drafting Scottie Pippen. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was on the Blazers at that point. And I got to look it up while I'm talking about it. Yeah, he's with the Blazers. Last few years of his career, and then, you know, a couple, couple games in Chicago that sort of didn't amount to anything. Uh, and that was when I sort of got my my real taste of Scottie Pippen because I wasn't paying that much attention to what he was doing uh, after, the, after the Chicago Bulls landscape. And it was also when I started to fall in love with the NBA players that can do all sorts of stuff, the fantasy guys that do a little bit of everything. That year, by the way, Pippen averaged only 10.5 points with the Blazers. On only 41% shooting, but I don't remember that 
I don't think percentages was even a thing in the league I was in that year. Uh, but five rebounds, six assists, 1.6 steals, and 0.6 blocks. That was fun. That's when I fell in love with the all-around fantasy basketball guy. If you're wondering why I draft the way I do now, you can blame Scotty Pippen. So thank you, Scotty, for your 30, age 36 season with the Blazers. You turned me into the fantasy mindset guy that I became today. Do, doing all those things, the stuffing things, guys, as our in-this-league buddies like to call it. I can't wait to see what comes out on Episodes 3 and 4 next Sunday. We'll talk more about it on that podcast. I'm sure I'll have more thoughts as this documentary works its way through. Uh, just really cool stuff. Really cool stuff. Oh, by the way, man, do they make Jerry Krause look bad in this thing so far. <laughs> Tomorrow, we will indeed break down a team. We'll start our tour of the Southwest Division and get back into the team-by-team breakdowns. This is your Monday edition of Fantasy NBA Today. Hope you enjoyed it. Talking a little bulls, talking a little lessons learned. I am Dan Bespris. This is a hoop ball presentation. Have a great Monday, everybody. Continue to stay safe. You guys know the rules. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This has been a hoop ball presentation.